It's good to have you here at Legacy Church. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew again. We're going to be in Matthew 13 today, so you can go ahead and start turning there. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We're going to have these up on the screen for you as well, and then we also have free Bibles um, on the way out the door if you want to grab those along with the gift that we have for you. And uh, hey, just a quick announcement too before we even get started. In two weeks, we have this beautiful opportunity up here where not only can we say we are going to be on mission as adults in the church, but our kids' community is going to be on mission as well. Um, Some of you have already heard a little bit about this, but we're going to get this great opportunity to benefit Isaiah 117, which is an incredible mission to those who are awaiting foster care. And so one of the things we're going to do as a church is loop our kids even into the into the missional endeavor, I guess you could say, of collecting clothes, new clothes, gently used clothes, um, fall clothes, really, if we could just be more specific, of all sizes for incoming foster kids for Isaiah 117. So if you have things around the house, maybe you've got kids that have aged out of some of the clothes, but you've barely used them. I know when we had kids, some of the clothes, I mean, you just get rained on by grandparents and things like that. So, I mean, some of those clothes never even had the tag pulled off of them. So anything from that all the way up to their favorite binky, if it's still in good shape, that we could give to these foster kids, unless it's Alabama. If you have something that's Alabama, leave it at home, send it straight to the trash. They're not even wanting that. So... Also, we're looking for gift cards, food gift cards, somewhere in the 10 to $25 range would be helpful. So think more Taco Bell, think more McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, but even maybe a preloaded visa or something like that that could help them with food. And then really, I mean, if, if we could probably focus on one aspect of what this missional moment can be, it's looping our kids into it and telling them why we're doing it, right? I mean, they, When I think of all the images that we have for the gospel, I think I'd put marriage up at the very top. I think that's the best, it's the boring, predictable institution of marriage. I think it's the most brilliant illustration of the gospel that we have. I think number two might be fostering kids. I think, I think to be adopted and brought into a family, I think that is one of the more beautiful depictions of the gospel that we have. And so I'm really excited about not just what we can do for Isaiah 117, I'm excited for how our kids grow after seeing something like that. And listen, I was a kid once. One of these moments might not make a ton of difference. Two might stick to their memory banks a little bit more profoundly. 17, 23 of these things, they grow up understanding what mission is. They grow up understanding what the gospel looks like when it has feet to it. So this is just one of those moments that we get to teach our kids, dream with our kids. This is also another opportunity to bring our neighbors into it. So all of us have neighbors, right? So they might have some gently used or new clothes or would be willing to go out and buy some new clothes for kids of any age, clothes for the fall of any size that they would be willing to give to you or they could come up and bring them up here in two weeks on the 7th. So don't bring your clothes up here next week, right? We're a mobile church. We don't have a giant trailer out there. We keep all our stuff here on site. So don't bring it up here. We don't have anywhere to keep it right now. But in two weeks, you're going to want to bring it up here, and that's where we'll collect it all. And then we'll also have a food truck here. So the Sugar Queen is bringing the food truck up here. It's an incredible food truck. You're going to love it. Ketogenic and paleo donuts, right? Not really. That's a lie. But if you want to break your diet, that is the most noble way to break your diet right there. I know because I've broken my diet four times because of that truck, and I don't regret any of it. So it's a great, great, great food truck, and uh, we're excited about them being a partner with us in this. And so 
just want to put that out there. If you have any questions, you can email us, info at LegacyKnoxville.com. You want some clarity on that. Maybe you have questions on um, just the, the cards or the clothes. We'd be happy to, to help you and walk you through that. But that is in two weeks, okay? Two weeks, the 7th. All right, we're going to go ahead and move on to the Word. So Matthew 13. Listen, I was talking to the setup and teardown crew this morning and the worship team and the production team, and I was asking a question, and I loved all the answers. Man, I love our church. The question was this. What is it that you spend money on that you really enjoy? Something that you look at and you think, yeah, that's totally worth it. Totally worth it. No questions. But then other people around you look on and they say, I cannot believe you spend money on that. I can't believe you spend that much money on that. We all have that thing, right? And it was interesting how diverse it was for all of our people. But you've looked, you've looked at purchases. You've seen stuff on Amazon or eBay and thought, who in the wide world would pay that much money for that? The answer is somebody right? Because somebody's always buying it or else it wouldn't be listed for that much money. Somebody is looking at that price and saying, yeah, that's totally worth it. Super excited. Who do I write the check out to, right? There was a painting that I was looking at the other day. We're going to put it up on a screen for you. It's a Mark Rothko piece. If you're like, hey, I think something's wrong with the projector. Nope. So it's mostly maroon with a black bar on the bottom of it. Rothko, is, besides my wife, is my favorite abstract artist. I actually love his pieces. This joker, however, $31 million. $31 million. That's enough to pay our current football coach a salary for 10 years right there. That's a lot of money. 30-something million dollars can buy a lot of a lot, right? But if that's too rich for you, if that's too much money for you, you can instead invest your money into a 1955 rookie card for Roberto Clemente at $172,000. 172K for a piece of cardboardish card that's probably sitting behind an inch of glass that you can't even touch, right? Or that money can buy you a Harvard education. That's a lot of money, 172,000. Or if that's too rich for your blood, and it might be, you could go to Chipotle after the service and risk yourself on some guacamole, which will run you $1.95 right now, which is a lot for guacamole, right? It's interesting how different people value different things differently. How I could buy something and you could say, what a waste, and I can see it as a great investment. Everything's like that. I'll stand in line. I'll stand in line for smoked brisket for probably an hour. I'd give it an hour, an hour and a half, and I won't even ask how much it costs when I get up to pay for it. They could just take all my money because I'm pretty sure it's worth it if it's in Texas or if it's in some place that understands what smoked brisket is supposed to taste like. It might be a different food for you. It might be Thai food or pulled pork. It might be thyme. Think about the, the way you spend your time. I will give four or five hours to watch a good football game, or really any football game, right? Or, or, or run through the mountains or bike through the mountains for a few hours. I would not, not spend even half that time fishing or golfing or something like that. I could not do it. In fact, I love asking people how much money it would take to get them to do something that is really stupid, right? And, and if you've known me for longer than six minutes, I've probably done this to you in some way. I know you're never going to do it, and you know I'm never going to pay. But it's so interesting to learn what it will take to get some people to do something totally ridiculous. I was hanging out with Ben and another friend not too long ago, maybe a few months ago, running pretty close to the Tennessee River. And I looked at our mutual friend, and I said, hey, I mean, it's not even the Tennessee River. It's like a tributary that touches it. It's all jank. It's not even moving. It's got turtles in it and stuff. I said, hey, 
how much would you, how much would it take for you to drink a gallon of that right now? He's like, I wouldn't do it. I was like, for a million bucks, you wouldn't do it? He said, no. I said, for, for 10 million bucks, would you drink a gallon of that? And he's like, no, I wouldn't. I was like, my man, if I rolled up with a barrel of tax-free dollars, up to $10 million, and you, you could just have it, if you drank a gallon of that, you wouldn't do it? He said, no. Said, That's a lie, man. But it told me everything I needed to know about that guy, and you can't trust him, right? But had he asked me how much money I would have done, I would have done it for guacamole. I would have done it for like 100 bucks probably, which shows that we value different things differently. Value is inscribed by whatever we are willing to give for it. The value of something is literally defined by the level of sacrifice we're willing to hold in order to get that thing. That's why today is one of my favorite parables in the Bible. And I think partly because it reminds me of how recklessly radical I was as a new Christian and in where I find the most joy today, I am my best version of myself when I am a zealous fanatic, when I am over the top. And I hold this world loosely so that I could grip his kingdom tightly. That is when I'm my best version. That's when you're your best version too, by the way, not just me. That's when you are your finest self. And I remember as a young Christian just being willing to give up everything for more of God, everything. I didn't hold anything tightly in this world, not my career, not my hopes, not my dreams, not my relationships, not my money, not my time, not my anything. I tossed everything out the window just to get more of Christ. And don't think that didn't get people's attention, and not in a good way. I had a lot of people trying to push me away from the edge, trying to talk some moderation and some sensibility into me because I was a zealot. I was a fanatic. And I always grew up understanding the definition of a fanatic as someone that loves God more than you, right? Because that's how we look at people that are more fanatical. People would try to caution me, and I just wasn't having it wasn't going to have it. Over time, however, as I grew, I would notice what the Bible calls choking weeds come up and try to distract, entice me, invite me into a deeper life of boredom, away from the adventure that I had found in Christ. And Jesus actually talks to this in a totally separate parable, one we're not even going to get to touch today. But he says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Eventually, God would do what he does often for me and many of us out of his sweetness and out of his kindness, and he shows us that these weeds are choking us out, these thorns are taking away our affection, and then he would give me the faith and the trust to start pulling thorns, to getting rid of the distractions, getting rid of all of the alluring desires, and just like pulling thorns in the real world, it would hurt but I would be convinced. And I would realize that the pain of rooting some of these things out of my life was actually nothing compared to the joy that would eclipse it in getting more of God. I'm sure you have felt this too. Now, if you're in Christ, I'm sure you have felt this type of revival where you've abandoned something to get more of God and then felt yet this release and this joy that can only come when you start to let go of this world and grip his more tightly. This is what God does in his kindness. It's his goodness that does that, that even shows us that we're in trouble. It's his Holy Spirit that reminds us of what Paul says when he says the sufferings of today are not comparable to future glory. Whatever the thorns are we're pulling out, it is nothing compared to the glory that we will enjoy in Jesus. That's how we feel in the midst of a revival. But from the outside looking in, onlookers, they don't see that. 
They're going to see a bunch of unbalanced, rash decision-making being made by you, and they will try to talk you out of it. And I heard it a lot. Luke, are you sure you want to get rid of that? Are you sure you want to drop out of that? Are you sure you want to let go of that? Do you really need to be that fanatical? I mean, I get it, you love Jesus, but do you, I mean, but do you have to be a zealot? There is this thing called moderation, right? You're not being sensible. You're being over the top. Why so drastic, Luke? Why so abrupt? I wasn't having it. You see, I think what we do a lot of times is we chalk that type of devotion to Christ up to something that young people do especially college, high school. That's where we, we doom that category to be the only ones that are ever going to take a risk, the only ones that are going to step squarely into the adventure of God. Because it's just easy to lay your life down when all of you have is a dorm room and a beat-up car and $6 in your Venmo account. It's easy to just say, I'm going to give it all to you, Jesus. But whenever you have five kids and braces and a mortgage, a little bit different, right? It's easy to be a zealous fanatic when you have no reputation, when nobody knows about you except for what you want them to believe off of your profile. A little bit harder, however, to be a zealous fanatic when you have this reputation that could be dinged, indented, jobs that you could lose, right? connections that will wither up. A little bit harder then. So as we get older, I think we're convinced, or at least we convince ourselves, that it's unwise to be so drastic for God, unwise to be so zealous for him, because in the real world, we tell ourselves things work a little bit differently. You've got to be moderate. You have to be right down the middle, sensible, right? You could love Jesus, but I mean, within bounds, right? Mostly Jesus. You could give things up, but you shouldn't give everything up. You could talk about Christ, but you don't need to talk about him all the time. So the older we get, the more we struggle with being tamed by a world of thorns, distractions, cares, desires, as Jesus said. So we're led away from being so abrupt and reckless and fanatical and zealous. We're led into a cage of shorts, just tamed into a life of boredom. In fact, that's how you know it's happening to you. You're bored. Maybe not bored in this minute, Maybe not even bored in this season of life, but with life in general, you're simply bored. You thought there would be more adventure. You thought things would turn out a little bit different, have more life, more vibrancy. You feel stuck. I think Jesus knew that this would be a struggle for his disciples, so he told this to his followers, this beautiful parable. And it's a parable for tamed Christians, for caged Christians. It's a parable for you, and it's a parable for me, for those who, those who are bored and feel distant from God because we're compromising with a world dripping with alternatives. He comes along, and he kindly reminds us that his kingdom is very different. His kingdom is very different. And just to remind you, maybe if you haven't been here, I, only, I think I addressed this two or three weeks ago, what his kingdom means, because his kingdom is not the same thing as his church, capital C, his global church. They overlap. Right? But you want to think of God's kingdom as his rule and his reign. It's, not, it's more than a place or a people. It's his reign, especially where it's submitted to. So is his church part of his kingdom? Yes, it is. 
But we also see his kingdom at hand, or the Bible will say, in our midst, whenever we see it break through on the dark landscape of the kingdom of this world. When you see a salvation, I don't know if any of you have ever seen someone become radically saved or been in a room where people are getting radically saved. If you have, there, it has a feel to it. There is a vibe to it. And it's because the kingdom of God is at hand. It is in our midst, right? If you've ever seen a deliverance or a healing, you have seen the kingdom of God break into the picture. So that's what the kingdom is. And the centerpiece of the kingdom of God is nothing less than the king. Jesus, King Jesus, is the center of orbit for the kingdom of God. He's our heroic leader. So when the kingdom of God is in our midst, it means Jesus is on the move. He's near. He is at hand. So when we are looking for the kingdom, searching for the kingdom, what we're really doing is looking for Christ, the centerpiece, the focal point, the climax of the kingdom of God. And let me tell you, he is not tame. He is not caged. He is not boring. In fact, as we say often, the most enjoyable life you can have on this earth is one that is submitted to his rule and his reign. It's the most enjoyable place you can have, the most rest you can experience, the most happiness that lights your soul up is when we submit to the kingdom of God. That's what we were created to do. And so here is this parable to come along and maybe help you and me. It's been helpful for me. This is Matthew 13, verse 44. This is going to help us see Christ very clearly today. And it's actually a duplet. We did a duplet last week where we took two small, very tiny, tiny, like one-liners and put them together because it gave us, it fueled us with the same main idea, and it's going to do the same thing today. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, it's a risky portfolio for all of you investors in the room, right? Doesn't sound very balanced right here. A lot of, a lot of risk tolerance, this guy. He's not diversified at all. People would have come along and caught this guy midstream and had a lot of questions for him. They would have walked up on his garage sale and they would have been like, yo, are you going to sell everything? You got like a Hot Pocket maker over here and your car over there and all of your clothes. That doesn't even make any sense. What are you going to wear? You're selling everything? What are you doing? Everything? That's what it would have looked like. We've been talking about how these parables, every parable has a hook, an unexpected pivot which is where we find the principle and the truth of the parable buried. And right here, it comes out right in the beginning. God is so valuable that even though we lose everything on earth, if we get his kingdom, it's a good trade. That's the main idea. That's it. God is so valuable that losing everything on earth, but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. It's a good deal. It's a great deal. This man sold everything, and he did it with joy. That's what's interesting. He did it with joy. He wasn't sad about it. He couldn't wait to liquidate everything he had. Now listen, forget the ethical dilemma of this part of the parable. It has one. He found a treasure and covered it up and did not disclose it. Some of you have caught that in the past. You're like, sounds kind of sketch. 
It is maybe, right? But listen, I also don't know his wife's name or what his favorite college team was. We're not supposed to know every detail about what's going on in the parable. That's not the point. The point of the parable is there's going to be one big takeaway. And for us in this, we don't want to get down in the weeds of the ethicality of what he's doing. We want to see that he is with joy and no sorrow and no regret and no hesitation selling everything to trade it in for the one big treasure. He knew value when he saw it. He sacrificed and risked everything, which was no sacrifice and no risk at all. And he took resolve in the face of a bunch of doubters, I'm sure, with a solid conviction. I think of all the people we have in our Bible who understood this parable the most might be Paul. Paul kind of embodies it, really, in many ways. He also refused to be bored, refused to be caged, and tamed, refused to be a a 72% Christian. He says this in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen, Paul had a lot to get rid of. His garage sale is bigger than yours, right? When he went on and deleted his LinkedIn account or changed his Instagram profile, he shed a lot of reputation. He got rid of it all. He lost a lot of connections that would have set him up well for the rest of his life. He cashed in his retirement. His loss was a noteworthy loss. And he embodies this parable for you and me. To him... There's no loss at all. It's a good trade. Good trade. I made out like a bandit in that. This invitation into a life that loses is also an invitation into a life that gains. A life of loss, a life of gain. It's both. It's an invitation to abandon boredom and step into adventure. We find Jesus saying this in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, we say from the, from the stage a lot, or I do, I say from the stage a lot, that we are to do things in the shape of Jesus. I use that phrase a lot, shape of Jesus, shape of the gospel. This is primarily one of the, one of the moments where I grab that from the Bible. Christ came, lived in a certain shape, a certain way. He carried himself a certain way, and he gives us the freedom to do the same way. He gives us the freedom to carry ourselves in the same way. And this is one of those examples. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Same lesson over and over again. Same lesson, different moment. Christianity has a theme that runs right down the middle of it. A disciple's life is one of loss and gain. We hold this world much loosely, much more loosely than the people around us, and we grip the kingdom as tightly as we possibly can. And when we don't do this, growth stops. Passion stops. Conviction gets weak. Joy withers. Whenever we get to the place where we say, I love God, but I won't give this up, that's where growth stops, simply. It's where sin is not destroyed, it's just managed. It's where bitterness is groomed, unforgiveness lives there. It's where we become bored, We forgot the feel of adventure. In fact, we cashed in on adventure and chose boredom because it is safer. Here's the truth, though. 
If you've gotten to the place where you say, I won't give this thing up for God, you are not safe. You're simply not safe at all. You're not holding altitude. I think we think of the Christian life as a situation, a reality to where if we stop growing, we're definitely not shrinking, we're just not moving. That's not true. You're not holding altitude, you're crashing. You're descending rapidly. That's what's happening. You're not safe. The destruction might be sleepy, but it is still destruction. So the big question that you and I have to carry to a parable like this and utterly to the, to the foot of the cross is what or who, what have we come face to face with that we say, I think I want this more than Jesus. This, I want more than Jesus. I see the treasure in the field. I'll sell quite a bit to get it, but I won't sell everything. It's a great looking pearl. I'll get rid of all my other pearls except for this one. Except for this one, I gotta keep it. This, this pearl, I'm gonna clutch. See, part of the Christian journey is repeatedly finding ourselves straddling two kingdoms, right? Kingdom of man, kingdom of God. Trusting one, trusting the other. And, and it's part of the journey to be challenged, to trust in God's rule, that it is better. Even if we don't believe it with our heart, even though we know it in our head, it's to believe that it is better. That his reign is better for us. Part of our journey is declaring with our mouth sometimes, if it is only with our mouth, that more of Jesus is better. More of Jesus is better than money. More of Jesus is better than sex, better than career, than hobbies, than safety, than reputation. It's better, even if we only half believe it. Listen, only if we half believe it. Well, we believe it on paper, but it hasn't totally sunk down to the bottom of our heart yet and formed what we call a conviction. Sometimes just declaring what you know to be true and then asking God to give you faith where you don't have faith and just asking God to give you trust where you don't have trust, that's where fanatics are born. That's where zealots come from. That's the seed form of a missionary. That's the shape of discipleship. Zeal for God begins when we hold loosely to this place and ask God to give us the ability to just let it go. And here's, here's what we do, though, when we find that pearl that we can't get rid of, that treasure that we're not going to sell everything for. We become these theologians of convenience. So when I say a theologian, we're all theologians. We all form doctrines of God, beliefs about God. Some of them are very close to the Bible. Some of them are far off from the Bible. But we are all theologians. You might be a good one. You might be a really bad one. But you are one. And we can become theologians of convenience here where we get very good at restructuring our theology to make room for compromise, to make room for the things that we're not really willing to liquidate. We convince ourselves that it's okay to live like this. And the only way we can feel good in our own skin is to recreate doctrine to allow us to live the life that we really want to. In fact, even right now, I, your flesh might be creating doctrine to give you a green light to settle and not be zealous and not be fanatical and not be over the top. Right now, the flesh might be convincing some of us right now to hold tightly to this world, not loosely, but tightly. We see this. We see it wholesale in the church. We see it in specific situations. I think we're seeing this wholesale just as an example in the realm of sexuality. Large denominations are changing doctrinal stances to allow broad groups of people to have active sexual lifestyles that the Bible would consider sinful. It's happening. It's happening in this city, in every city. Listen, God has made us sexual creatures. 
Because it's good. Because sex is good, and it can glorify God, right? When it's expressed under his rule. Kingdom sexuality glorifies God. And yet, sexuality is not God. God is better than sexuality. God, well, when I say that, he's better than the object of our sexual affections. God is better. Right? Listen, this is true if you're straight or if you're gay. God is better than sex. I want you to hear me really carefully when I say this. I'm not saying that more of God is better than homosexual relationships. I'm saying that Jesus is better than all sexual relationships. God is better. More of God is better. In fact, for those who have same-sex attractions, who walk through that, who struggle with that, who fight that, there is heavy loss and heavy pain for them. Listen, the pearls that they have to sell to get the big pearl, that's costly for them. Put yourself in their shoes. They're selling quite a bit to grab that treasure. We should be praying for them, praying for their courage to trust Jesus, praying for their courage to say, God is better than this. God is better than the way I feel. God is better than a life where I can spend my sexuality in any direction I want. God is better. We have to pray for that. We have to pray that they understand that this is not our home, that this prepares us for life. This isn't life. This prepares us for life. We have to pray that they find relationships, solid ones, that they have endurance, that they have courage, they have encouragement. This is a massive battleground right now in the fight for orthodox teaching. Pastors right now, even today, are rewiring their theology to accommodate those who are unwilling to lose all for the sake of Christ. They're not willing to do it. And so instead, instead of losing all for Christ, we lose most for Christ. And then we'll just rewrite the details to accommodate the rest. Second Timothy, Paul says this would happen. He says, for this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You gotta pray. But that's just wholesale. That's just denominationally. If we zoomed in and clicked on us, we all have pearls that we're not willing to sell, right? Look at forgiveness. That's a touchy one. Have you ever told yourself in your heart, even if it hasn't come out of your mouth, I won't forgive that person? Listen, that's a theological statement when you say that. That's a theological statement. I won't forgive that person. We say that because it allows us to keep compromise, to avoid loss. We say it in ways that sound like, I will forgive, but I won't forget which is just another way of saying, I'll forgive, but I'm not really going to forgive. I'm going to forgive, but I'm always going to hold it. I'm always going to hold it. It's weird that we say that. What we're really saying is what they did is unforgivable. That means we've lost sight of the gospel. For sure, forgiveness is a well-worn path, right? It's more of a journey than it is a place we finally get to. If you finally get to a place of forgiveness, that's a gift of God. Enjoy it. But you know as well as I do, some of the people that we forgive, some of the moments of forgiveness, Forgiveness require repeated, repeated layers, repeated trips to the communion table, repeated trips to the cross over and over and over again. But if we get to the place where we say, I will give everything for this beautiful treasure except for this one thing, except for this pearl, then what we're really saying is I see the value of Jesus, but I need this unforgiveness. I see that he's a great treasure, but he's not worth everything that I have. Unforgiveness is literally holding tightly to this world and holding loosely to the kingdom of God. It's literally taking the best pearl and selling it for substandard pearls. Another pearl that we carry that we're not really willing to get rid of is reputation. I need to be seen as someone other than who I am. 
I mean, we're just simply in an age where being a Christian, we'll just take the Christian part of our identity, even though we have different identities, our primary one is Christian. It's viewed by the country now not as a laughing stock. People aren't laughing at you anymore. They hate you if you're a Christian. You're the problem with society now if you are a Christian. Losing reputation and prestige because of where you stand on issues, that's going to hurt. That's a real loss. That's a real loss. A lot of times what we will do is try to avoid it. We avoid it. Your views on sexuality and gender, the sanctity of life, that's going to put your reputation at risk. It's going to cost you jobs. It's going to lose you friends. It's a real loss. So what we'll do often is we'll invent theologies that will allow us to cushion the hard words in the Bible and soften the edges. We'll invent doctrine that will make mainstream happy and get applause. I was told at an an early age, Luke, for every step you take away from biblical obedience, people will be there to applaud you. For every step you take away from your convictions in Christ, people will pat you on the back and tell you good job. And what we do is we change our doctrine, we change what the word says, and we become a tame middling in a cage. And now we're doing it wholesale because we're building churches that will make disciples that will do the same. See, these are all theological statements. But for you and me, what is so shiny that you cannot lose it for more of Jesus? What is it for you? Is it your sexuality or your reputation? Your money? Your dreams? Your time? What are the thorns that choke out your affections for Jesus? Because there's good news. The gospel is perfect for you, right? The gospel is perfect for you, and you are perfect for the good news of the gospel. We have a king, a centerpiece of this kingdom, and he leads us well here. If if you're bored of holding this world tightly, the gospel is perfect for helping us let go. The gospel is a good story because it's a story of loss and it's a story of gain. If it's a story of anything, it's a story of those two things, right? He shows us that by laying himself down, he gains everything for us. And we walk in his shape, as I said. He is the firstborn from the dead, and he bursts from the tomb. He laid down everything willingly and joyfully. The gospel for you and the gospel for me leads us because it is a story of heavy loss and overwhelming gain. Heavy loss, real loss not to be mocked, real loss, not to be downplayed, it's serious loss. And still it is eclipsed by the glory that is found in Christ. This is what Isaiah 53 says. If you're not familiar with Isaiah 53, a lot of people call it the fifth gospel, even though it's in the Old Testament, is one of the cleanest and most accurate descriptions of the person of Jesus and his work, and it's hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even came about. It's one of the reasons I got saved, was convinced by how beautifully attached this this passage, or at least part of this passage, was to the gospel. And I'm going to just focus on two or three verses out of it. It's usually ones that we don't look at. It says this in verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Now we're reading about his loss. He is shedding things here. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, and what has he suffered exactly? He suffered the loss of justice. He has suffered the loss of relationships. 
the loss of his reputation. He suffered the loss of his life. He suffered the loss of the felt presence of God. But it goes on. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Satisfied. He understands what it's like to have a life of heavy loss and heavy gain. Heavy loss and heavy gain. Jesus sold everything off for one big prize, even his own breath. He gave up everything for one big prize, and that is the glory of God, his affections for his Father. It says he will be satisfied. He shows us what it looks like to hold on to this world with loose hands, but to hold on to the glory of the kingdom with tight grip. And we can do this as well. We can walk in the same shape. That's what the Holy Spirit is here to do, is to help you and I walk in the same shape. We can hold loosely to this world, knowing that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is of much greater value. And listen, there's about 58 applications, I'm sure, for a sermon like this. I'm going to give you one. Because I find myself in these places, and you might be there now, where you feel kind of stunted maybe, you feel locked, you feel um, stuck, and you don't know how to get to this place of feeling stuck and bored and distracted into a place where others are calling you a fanatic and they're trying to talk you away from the edge. And I I find one of the greatest ways of doing this, to just start the process, to put the first foot in front of the other is what's called a prayer of indifference, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's the prayer that starts off this way, whatever your will is, I'm on board. Whatever your will is, I'm willing. Let it be done in my life. That's the kind of prayer that will pry the knuckles loose of this world. Your will. That's how fanatics are born. That's where zealots come from. It's going to be a prayer like that that brings about an interior freedom. One that is detached from all of the things and the chains and the desires and the deceitfulness of this world. It's the prayer that helps you lose things differently than the way the world loses things. Where the world looks at you and they say, you gave that up? I don't know that I could ever give that up. And you could look at the world and you could say, worth it, totally worth it, best deal in the world. I made out like a bandit on that. Friend, hear me. If you want to grow, and I, I mean really want to grow, if you want to grow, you have to pass through a parable like this. You've got to make it through a parable like this if you want to change. You've just got to let go of this world. You've got to let go of it. God's will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. It's one of the most dangerous prayers in the world. Because as you ask for God to give you the faith, to give you the trust, to give you the conviction, to walk into a life like that, you become what is called a zealot. It's where adventure is found. It's where discipleship grows. This is the Christianity I'm hungry to see our church bring to people. We're importing people. We're going to have bored people walking in, people that are done with the church walking in, people full of distractions. They're 58% into the kingdom of God, but they've got so much they're just not really willing to get rid of. That's what we're going to be importing for sure. I want legacy to export something differently. This is the Christianity I'm hungry to see. This is the kind of Christianity that doesn't just start churches. Come on, it starts movements. It starts movements. It brings awakenings. And if this is you, and you start praying prayers of indifference every day, God, not my will, but your will. 
God, whatever you want right here, I'll give it up. You want my career? It's yours. You say the word. You want my dreams? They're yours. I mean, you gave your life. What, I'm, I'm easily going to give mine. That's where joy is found. That's where happiness is found. If you pray something like that, you need to expect doubters all around you. The world will not understand this kind of love. <laughs> they won't. They'll tame you, and they'll tame you to feel content in their own skin. They want to normalize the environment. They're going to want to back you away from the edge of this radical, abrupt living so that they can feel normal again. You need to expect this. Listen, if you are listening, maybe you're online, maybe you're here, and you are a skeptic of Christianity or you're shopping religions or however you would say it, maybe you're just curious. Maybe you want to learn more. Maybe you're not even sure where you're at. Maybe you might be that person that you think, I think I'm mostly saved, not mostly. I don't even know if that, if that makes sense. I don't know mathematically if that works. If that is you and you don't know where you're at, I'm inviting you to a kingdom right now that is at hand and it is increasing. The kingdom of man is crumbling. Let's face it, the kingdom of man is coming to its conclusion. The kingdom of God is expanding and swelling, and it is unstoppable. It will not be intimidated. It won't even be slowed down. I'm inviting you away from a safe life, a predictable life, a life of boredom, because the gospel is anything but safe. <laughs> the gospel is not safe at all. Straight up between you and me. It's going to lead you to reject the pearls in your hand to get the one great pearl. That is not going to ever feel safe. And the older you get, and the more you have, the harder it gets. Christianity is radical. It's not tame. It's going to demand every bit of you. You are rescued just as you are. That is for sure. But discipleship will alter you irreparably. The gospel will change absolutely everything it encounters because the kingdom is no place for compromise.